If you uh, have a Bible, it would be a good idea to open it now to the book of Acts. And today we are in chapter 13. We will conclude chapter 13 today. The book of Acts, the title of the message is The Spreading of the Word. And you'll see that all throughout the book of Acts, how the word of the Lord spread throughout uh, Asia Minor and uh, other places that we see mentioned in the book of Acts. Today we're in Antioch in Pisidia. And we're going to see how people responded to the first sermon that the Apostle Paul ever preached. And uh, we're going to begin our reading today in verse 42. So the book of Acts is both history and theology. It's not a pure history. It's written with a theological interest and intent. And so what it's showing us is how the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to, to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're seeing now we're uh, involved in the first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we look at this passage today, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be the preacher and the teacher. We pray that you would fill my heart with your thoughts. And as I preach your word today, may it go forth clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may it speak to our hearts. May we not be able to evade and avoid what you're saying to us today. And may we hear it and rejoice in it and welcome the Word of God as it truly is, your Holy Word. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The scene at the Antioch Synagogue following 
the Sabbath day, uh, they begged Paul to continue to teach and preach. So he stayed an extra week, and then uh, the church or the synagogue gathered the next Sabbath, and it was a replay, really, of how the gospel has gone forth all through the book of Luke. Uh, there was a gospel encounter early with a man by the name of Sergius Paulus and uh, Bar-Jesus on Cyprus. But now at a community level, God-fearing Gentiles had reported all those within their sphere of influence that Paul and Barnabas had good news of forgiveness and God's approval simply received by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And as a result, Luke sort of generalizes that almost the whole city, not only Gentiles previously attracted to the Jewish faith, but also those immersed in paganism uh, overran the synagogue to hear the missionary's message. And so we see the word of the Lord begin to spread throughout the area. But there are three things that I want us to focus our attention on this morning in particular. And they are outlined for you in the bulletin. I want to talk about why the gospel is rejected. Number two, I want to talk about why the gospel is accepted by people. And number three, I want us to see how Paul and Barnabas, though banished, experience deep joy. So first, let's think about this a moment. Paul here is really addressing uh, the Galatians. This is in the province of Galatia, and only a few months later, he will write a letter to the Galatians, and it's very striking that he brings together here five of the great words that will be the foundation stones of his gospel having referred to Jesus' death on a tree, that he was accursed for us. He took the curse that should have fallen on me upon himself and experienced the curse of God so that I might experience his blessing. Then he goes on to speak of sin and of faith and of justification and grace that God declares us to have a right relationship with Him based upon the person of Jesus and His work upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead as sufficient to save us and put us who are alienated from Him back into a right relationship with Him. And so that's what we see in Paul's gospel message. But why do the ones that reject the gospel do so? And why do the ones who accept the gospel do so? And let's even make that more personal. Why do you believe the gospel and your neighbor doesn't, or your friend doesn't, or your relatives don't, or your co-workers don't? Why is it you believe, and why is it they don't? It's a good question to think about. Hopefully this message will help you discern why. First, why the gospel is rejected. The historical specifics of this situation, both Jews and Gentiles initially favorably responded to the gospel. But as the gospel took hold in the city, Jewish members of the synagogue began to turn away from the Christian message. Why did they do so? In verse 45, Luke tells us why. Because they were jealous. We can remember that Paul's message in the synagogue was mainly to Jews, talking about our fathers and showing Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ of Israel. 
so that the presentation showed that the history of the Jewish people was central to God's saving purposes for the whole world. That it's very honoring and flattering to the Jewish people and surely was a cause of rejoicing. But the following Sabbath, it began to dawn on the Jewish listeners that the Christian message is this. Though salvation has come through ethnic Israel, it is now for the whole world, for all peoples. That was too much for them to take. Consider how long it took the rest of the apostles to even understand it. This explains the specific reasons for the rejection of the gospel in this case. But there's a deeper spiritual principle going on here. Paul says to them, you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. What a strange thing to say to religious people. You do not consider yourself worthy of an eternal life. What did he mean by that? Now, that would seem to contradict Paul's teaching everywhere else that there's no one ever that merits eternal life. He says they don't consider themselves worthy of it. And it's an ironic twist here that Paul places upon it. The Jews found the freeness of the gospel and its offer to all, good and bad, religious and pagan, insulting. They were offended. They were offended by a dead Messiah. They were offended by being saved by a death on a cross because hanging someone on a cross is like hanging someone on a tree and it means they're cursed and how can a cursed person save me and hang it? how can a dead messiah be a dead messiah and so the gospel demands that the recipients of eternal life admit that they are not worthy of it whatever the record but the Jews in Pisidian Antioch con considered themselves too worthy to receive grace and eternal life. One of the ironies of the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Christ, is that the only way to be worthy of the gospel or fit for it is to admit that you are completely unworthy and unfit for it. How that cuts against the grain of what most of us think most of our lives. And it's an amazing truth here that Paul lays before us. Um, Robert Capone explains this way, the world is by no means averse to religion. In fact, it's devoted to religion with a passion. It will buy any recipe for salvation as long as that formula leaves the responsibility for cooking up salvation firmly in human hands. The world is drowning in religion. It is lying full fathom 40 in the cults of spiritual growth, physical health, psychological self-improvement, and ethical probity, not to mention the religions of money, success, upward mobility, sin prevention, and cooking without animal fat. But it is scared out of its wits by any mention of the grace that takes us home gratis. Religion tries to tame and domesticate grace, but grace is antithetical to religion. 
Grace is costly because it lays the axe at the root of all of our cherished possessions and achievements, not the least is of which is in the realm of our religion. For it is in religion that man's self-justification may reach its most supreme and subtle form. Religion can be the supreme form taken by human sin. Jacques Ellul also says, Grace is the hardest thing for all of us to be reconciled to because it implies the renouncing of our pretensions, our power, our pomp, and our circumstance. It is the opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. Grace reveals our natural pride of self-sufficiency as well as the pride of spiritual progress. Nothing is more devastating to our spiritual pride than grace. Therefore, our response to God's grace includes the recognition of our sinfulness and the rejection of all confidence in ourselves, in our gifts, in our resources, and in our abilities. you ever criticize another person? Do you ever look at somebody else and go, you know, they're not very spiritual. They don't seem to be very serious about their faith. And so you begin to look at other people and you become critical of them and you point out where they fall short. And not only do you point it out to yourself, but you point it out to others. Jonathan Edwards says that is the malignant cancer of spiritual pride. Edwards says he wouldn't even begin one moment to ever try to judge anybody else because he has so much wrong with himself that he doesn't have time to look at what's wrong with everybody else. Are you that way? If you understand the grace of God, you're free to be that way. You don't have to be the world's judge. You don't have to be the one that thumbs up or thumbs down other people's lives. You've got so much to do in your own heart to grow and understand and be sanctified about. And so grace is so hard for us. Unmerited favor for undeserving sinners is never, ever comfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he doubted very seriously. He was a Welsh preacher. He was a doctor, medical doctor, who later became a preacher. And Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, I doubt seriously if anyone is a Christian if they haven't been offended by, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Jesus Christ tells me there is nothing I can do but trust in that. That I am so lost. I need to be rescued so much that the second person of the Trinity had to come and become a man of flesh and blood without sin to go to the cross and redeem a sinner like me. And that humbles me and it levels me. I'm not better than anybody. I'm not more spiritual than anybody. And all this uh, one-upmanship and spiritual game playing makes God sick. The gospel... And the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ is the death blow, the very end of religion. Religion being trying to make myself acceptable to God by what I do or trying to keep the approval of God by what I do. That's what religion is. And so religion is needed... Uh, where there is a wall of separation between man and God, but Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down the wall between man and God. He has inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. 
Jesus didn't come to this earth and give us a set of teachings to obey, and if we do pretty good at it, we're okay. No, Jesus came to save sinners, broken, helpless, impotent people. Why are you a Christian? Because God's grace has fallen upon you and gripped your heart. Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Jesus was the most anti-religious religious teacher ever. He hated religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. It is the bizarre proclamation that religion is done. It's over with, period. Grace is the end of religion because the second promise of the gospel frees us from the supposed promises of our religious self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-justification. As we trace the biblical teaching of the doctrine of grace, remember that this same grace still has explosive power to mess up all of our tidy categories. It has a way of shocking us uh, with radical grace of unmerited favor that God lavishes upon rebels. And so note that as Paul is explaining in this passage why the gospel is rejected, it's because the gospel is for people who are not worthy of it. It's not, a, it's not a scale that you have to balance. It's not a flow chart that you have to complete all the steps. This is a universal condition and principle. The gospel is so absolutely free that all you need is need. All you need is nothing. For it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. If we cannot admit our need and unworthiness, then we cannot receive eternal life. And that was why the Jews rejected the gospel. Because they had taken upon themselves the burden of the Torah, the law of God in the Old Testament, and believed that the way to sanctify themselves, the way to live before God was to obey it. He would bless you. If you disobey it, he would curse you. And they didn't get grace. For the most part. But that's the best news in all the world. And, and when people hear it, they go, no, that, can't, that, that, just, that can't be so. It can't be true. Surely, pastor, you're smart enough to know that nobody gets something for nothing. Nobody but the Christian. You know, all I contribute to my salvation is my sin. That's it. Now, why is the gospel accepted by people? Though human beings must be, accept responsibility for rejecting the gospel, when they do so, they cannot take responsibility for accepting it when they do. Verse 48 tells us why some people responded to the gospel while others did not. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, 
They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Word of the Lord is code in the book of Acts for gospel. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. Is that in the Bible? Is it in my Bible? Is it in your Bible? Think about that for a moment. It does not say that all who were believed were appointed for eternal life, but rather those who were appointed for eternal life believed. <coughs> Excuse me. This categorically says that if we respond positively to the gospel, it is because there was a prior appointment given to us. One of my seminary professors who I dearly love, who is now with the Lord, was R.C. Sproul. And he used to talk a lot about this particular truth. And he would say that people used to tell him all the time that when I first became a Christian, I believed it was my choice, it was my decision that, I led, that led me to conversion. I was grateful to God who'd made it possible, but I really believe that the reason I became a Christian while my neighbor did not is because I exercised free will. But I've been listening, R.C., he says, and finally have come to the conclusion that it was, in fact, God who chose me. It was God, the hound of heaven, who renewed me by the Holy Spirit, created faith in my heart, and then I responded. Now I see that the Bible's very clear about that. If you believe your free will contributed to salvation, you don't believe in salvation by grace because there's something you did to make it happen. That's why grace offends people. It isn't I'm offending you. It isn't God's offending you. Grace is offending you. All who came to faith did so by divine appointment. God has decreed from all eternity that they would come and hear the Apostle Paul, that they would be quickened or made alive to faith by the Holy Spirit. And everyone that had been so appointed from eternity believed. People do not like this verse you would laugh yourself silly to read the number of commentators that I have read on this particular passage who do everything in the world to get around the clear uh, Occam's razor edge of what this verse says. We are not chosen because we believe. We believe because we have been chosen. That is what the Bible teaches. A classic work on the book of Acts was written by a 19th century a uh, man by the name of H.B. Hackett, who was a classmate of Oliver Wendell Holmes. About this verse, Hackett said that th there's just no other way to read it. You commentators create a variety of slants on this text and do funny things with the context and the syntax of the Greek to change the clear meaning. You cannot get away from it. This is what Luke wrote, and this is what Luke meant. The only reason anybody was saved out of that ungodly mass of people who were blaspheming and criticizing the preaching of the Word of God was that God intervened in the hearts of His elect and translated them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, if you take this truth and you misuse it, you will puff yourself up and think you're somebody when the whole point of this truth is to let the air out of you completely. It is to humble you. It is to break you. 
It is to bring you to the point. See, most times people are going, well, how come they weren't chosen? I don't think that's fair. How come that group's not cho chosen? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is not, why were they not chosen? The right question to ask is, why was I chosen? Why was I chosen? Why me? And that, that's so humbling. You're looking at it the wrong way if you try to look at it the other way. Only God knows the answer to that, and He hasn't told us. But I know God, and I know this much. He's just, He's righteous, and He does all things well. But I want to tell you something. If you're still raging about how unfair it is, you want fairness? Fairness is everybody goes to hell. Everybody is banished from God's presence. Everybody lives in eternity separated from God. But because God's heart is gracious, for some reason known only to Him that He loves us, He drew a circle around us, and He included us as His children. And hallelujah, He did so. Because if He did not, I wouldn't be here today. I would not be preaching the gospel to you today. I know that about myself. Now, people are offended by this, as I've said earlier. And uh, many questions arise, of course, about predestination. But it's simply best to rest in the helpful and clear facts given here. When we reject the gospel, it is done so freely. We are not forced to do so. We are responsible for what we have done. But if anyone accepts the gospel, it is because God has been at work overcoming our freely chosen hostility against Him. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws Him. And so the Spirit draws, literally drags, you to Jesus. Thus, after we believe, we have no one. God says over and over again in the Bible, no one shall boast. You know, we quote that a passage out of Ephesians, and that passage out of Ephesians goes, For by grace we have been saved by faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest no one should boast. What does it mean to boast? It means to take credit. And if I say I'm saved, I, I didn't mean to get off on this, but somebody needs to hear this. If I boast, that means I'm taking credit that I participated in my salvation. That's a dangerous thing to say. You want to lose the gospel? That's the fastest way. The fastest way. We cannot save ourselves. Other people say, well, God would never violate my free will. He's a gentleman. He would never violate. Let me tell you something, Father. If you were standing out by a swimming pool and you're toddler child who doesn't know to swim decides to bail into the pool if you're any kind of father at all you bail in after him and violate the citadel of his free will and save him and that's what God does and it makes me love him I, I'm lost in wonder love and praise at his astonishing astounding grace and that is exactly what Paul is teaching in this passage notice that the Gentiles that believed were glorifying the word of the, Lord, the gospel. That's what they were glorifying. Uh, as Paul began to tell them, 
that they were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That means to boast in something is to take credit for it. To glorify something is to say all praise, honor, glory, uh, cause of everything I have in Jesus is by his grace. God loves that. And that's the only way he saves. Well, we see that the word of the Lord filled Antioch and overflowed throughout the region and opposition from Jewish quarters mounted, women belonging to Gentile aristocracy had attached themselves to the synagogue as God-fearers and were influenced by the synagogue leaderships to oppose Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps the leading men of the city who joined in the opposition were their husbands. Elsewhere, wealthy and God-fearing women would welcome the gospel and the persecutors would be drawn from the lower cat classes. Both prominent and the poor confront the invitation to faith and the danger of unbelief. Paul and Barnabas were thus banished from the environs of Antioch and moved east to Iconium, but not before shaking the city's dust from their feet as a sign of God's indictment. One day Jesus was in Luke chapter 13. He was talking about a, the, the uh, disciples and the people approached him and said, Have you heard the latest news? There was a tower in Siloam that fell and killed nine people. And so they asked that question, asking him, Jesus, why did that happen? Why did the tower fall on nine people? And I think Jesus' answer is probably the best answer I've ever heard. His answer was, why didn't it fall on you? Why didn't it fall on you? And that's the right question to ask. That's the Jesus way of answering the questions. And so they shook the dust off their feet as a sign of God's judgment. And uh, Jews shook the dust from their feet and clothing from returning home from unclean Gentile uh, areas. Now, Christ's messengers signify that unbelieving Judaism has become unclean by rejecting its Messiah and his gracious gift of forgiveness. Yet they left behind disciples filled with the joy of salvation through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is your joy in God's amazing grace fresh and vibrant? Does it overflow when the gospel and the spirit draw outsiders into the family of God. Thus we see today the spreading word of the Lord. And we see why the gospel is rejected. Because people don't want to be saved by grace. And why the gospel is accepted. Because God saves by grace. And how joy wells up in the soul. You know what's blocking our joy? You know what's filtering out our experience of peace and contentment and joy in Jesus? It's our religious nature. It's our desire to put God in debt to me so I can control my life so that he will owe me. You know, everybody in here is a control freak, just in different ways. We like to be in control and nothing helps more than religion. And nothing takes it away from you faster than grace. Let me plead with you today. Respond to the grace of God. 
come to Christ who said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down, tired, bone tired. Burdened down and bone tired over what? Religion. Trying to make myself right with God. Stop it. Stop self-salvation. Come to Christ and I will give you what? Rest. And what is rest? The opposite of striving. The opposite of trying harder. It's the opposite of trying to merit or put God in debt for something. Rest is resting in the arms of your Savior. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning uh, for the beauty and glory of the grace of God and the truth that we have heard together as your people. We pray that as we continue to worship, you would pour out upon us great joy as we grasp your grace that one of the things that steals from us so much our joy and our grace is our return back to the sweatshop of religion to the sweatshop of legalism to the sweatshop of moralism and we become so fake and that the only real thing for us is resting in the arms of Jesus may people do that today now, Father, as we continue our worship, we pray your blessings upon us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.